The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 25 verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, this sermon is going to be a bit abnormal this morning. As you heard, our reader only read chapters 25 through one, 25, one through nine, verses one through nine. And this is an overview. This section here is an overview of the next six chapters. Uh, and we are not going to go verse by verse through these next six chapters, even though it can be interesting for, uh, and, and really great for a, a kind of personal Bible study. Instead, I'm going to cover these six chapters in this one sermon today. And, well, actually, we should just, did you hear what I just said there? Let me just pray. Six chapters, one sermon. Father, we need your help. Um, We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your kindness. We need your spirit. We are coming to a document that is over 3,500 years old in a different culture, a different time, a different, written in a different language. There are many obstacles in our way from understanding it. But we thank you that it was the same spirit that inspired the writing 3,500 years ago that's here today, helping us interpret, helping us understand it, even applying it to our heart. And so I ask for the Holy Spirit to think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords that you would help us hear it Um, Hear what the Spirit says to your church, and not just what I would have to say. Um, I pray that you would do a good work in our hearts, that you would help us focus and be attentive. And um, God, worshiping you requires all of us. It requires all of our thinking faculties. And so would you help us think deeply and, and love strongly this morning for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Exodus 25, 1 through 9. And if you, hopefully you were with us last week. If you weren't with us last week, I want you to go back, watch that podcast. You can watch the video on Facebook or you can find the podcast online. But what we saw last week was God called Moses up Mount Sinai and into his presence. And that was a dramatic display of his glory complete with fire and smoke and a sapphire footstool. God told Moses, come up here and I'm going to give you the 10 commandments etched into stone. All right. So that's what we're waiting on. God calls Moses to come up. He's going to give him the 10 commandments etched into stone. But this is interesting. Here we have Moses entering into that Shekinah glory. That Shekinah glory is when the transcendent reality of God comes into his creation. Creation trembles and shakes and, and it moves and it, it's, it's, that's his glory. John Piper says God's glory is his holiness put on display Okay, for, for us to see. And so when it comes down... And it rests on the top of the mountain. And God says, I'm going to give you the commandments. Come up in. Moses goes in. But what we see here is God gives him something else first. God surprises Moses and gives him far more than he was expecting. Moses has already met with God several times. He's 
already been given the Ten Commandments in verbal form. He came back. He recited them to the people. The people said, with one voice, yes, we'll do it. Moses went back. He wrote the Ten Commandments down in what he called the Book of the Covenant. That's the first draft of the Book of Exodus. He comes down. He reads it before the people. Once again, they say, yes, we'll do everything the covenant says. Everything in the law. We'll do it. We'll obey you. God, we want you to be our God. We'll be your people. But then last week, God says, come on up again, and I'm going to give you these commandments in stone. So in one sense, Moses, even though it was an epic display of God's glory and not common in any sense of the word, Moses, in his mind here, thinks he knows what's going to happen. I'm going to walk in and, you know, I'm going to get some big tablets, right? I'm going to get some granite. I'm going to go home with some granite, right? That's what he thinks is going to happen. He walks, going to walk into the glory cloud and be given a couple of stones. But that's not what happens right away. What we see this week is that God gives him something more, something that he wasn't expecting, something shocking, actually. If you've been with us over this, you know, this study of Exodus, you're going to realize how shocking it is. God says to Moses, I'm not going to stay up here on the mountain. I'm not going to stay up, up here, distant from my people, out of reach of my people. I'm not like other gods who only dwell at the peaks of mountains and who can only be reached by the elite. No, Moses. God says, I've called you up here. I've called you into my presence to tell you, that I'm coming down with you. I'm going to dwell with my people. Now, this should just blow us away, right? It's so easy for us to hear the Ten Commandments and think, man, all God wants for us is our obedience. He just wants us to, you know, he's like a slave. He's just a new slave master in the sky. He just says, you know, shut up, sit down and obey me. That is not the God of the Bible. Listen, the transcendent God who thunders from Mount Sinai is also the God who says, I want to come down and be with you. I want, last week we saw him draw near to me, draw near to me. This week we see him saying, I want to draw near to you. Now, I really want you to see the heart of God here. God is holy and transcendent, and full of glory and splendor. Astronomers speculate that there are over a hundred billion galaxies in our universe, and they all declare God's magnificence. They all declare, they're speaking the word of God's glory. This is how grand he is, a hundred billion galaxies. And yet, all of God's creation cannot contain him. God exists outside of time and outside of space and outside of matter. And yet he can manifest himself inside of his creation when he wants to. And we saw that glory last week manifested on top of the mountain. But here God is looking down the mountain and God sees his people dwelling in tents. They're on a 40-year journey to a land that he has promised them. And every time they move, they have to take down their tents, carry them and transport them to the next place, set them up again. And God looks down at his people and their plight and their difficulties. And he says, I want to be with them. (laughs) He, He literally says, I want a tent too. Make a tent for me. I want my people to know, yes, I am transcendent and full of glory, and you'll never get your mind fully around me, but I also want them to know that I am imminent. I am here and present, and I want to be near to them in their struggle, in their difficulties. Right here with you in this tabernacle or tent. And so, The first thing God gives Moses when he gets into this Shekinah glory cloud isn't the Ten Commandments. It is specific blueprints 
almost a 3D model of what is called a sanctuary. That means a holy place or a tabernacle. Tabernacle, literally it's God's tent. That's what it means. And God shows Moses exactly how it is to be built and the exact dimensions of all the furniture that is to be placed inside. And chapters 25 through 30, these six chapters are a detailed description of these blueprints given by God. And listen, I could have went piece by piece and explained it all to you. And that's fun, right? For a Bible study. I didn't think it was gonna be that beneficial for us. And so I do have a picture. I'll show it to you. I'll explain a couple things real quick. Okay. This is a picture of the tabernacle in the next six chapters, 25 through 30, that God describes piece by piece in exact detail, what to build, how to build, what materials to use, how to set it up, how to tear it out, the whole thing, who's going to live in there, who's going to work in there. This is what it's set up. And you see there's this outer perimeter. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a gate, but it's more of a curtain that's set up. There's an east gate. That gate always uh, is on the east side. Interesting fact, uh, Adam and Eve, when they're kicked out of the garden, they're pushed out of the east gate. God put angels to block them off. They could never get back into the presence of God. You enter into the east gate to enter into God's presence in, in his tabernacle. I'm not going to go into all the cool things like that. Uh, you've got uh, tables here in the, out, in the outer uh, the outer courts to, to, to do your sacrifices. You've got the burnt offering. You've got the, the basin where you wash yourself. You, the priest purifies himself before he enters. Then you walk into this tent and this tent, it's all, it's kind of elaborate materials and such, but there's an outer curtain there. You walk in behind that and now you're in what's called the holy place. You can see the candle that's there. Um, there is the table of showbread in there. There's all kind of, there's all these things that God wanted designed for a specific purpose. And then there's another curtain you can see through the cutout. And that is the Holy of Holies. You've heard of that. And the Ark of the Covenant sits back there. If you've seen Indiana Jones, you know what that is. Um, Not necessarily a weapon, but whatever. Uh, God's presence would dwell in there. And there is a mercy seat on top of it. And as you get closer into the Holy of Holies, the material gets more precious. And so you have bronze out here, you have silver in the holy place, and then you have gold in the holy of holies. And this is, and, and listen, it's, I mean, precise measurements that they get, okay? Everything, there's not like, build me a table. And we're like, oh, I think I can build you a table. I'll build you a table. And we choose the materials. We choose the size. We, God says exactly how he wants everything built. But you can get rid of that. And you can read the next six chapters on your own and you can get the, the, the detail that he's going through here. But I've got some big things that I kind of want us to see. Um, I want us to look in our text this morning, chapters, or chapter 25, one through nine. I want us to go through this, see this overview of these six chapters. And I think we're meant to learn at least three really important things about living near to God. Now, let me just ask you, is that, is that not what you want? Is that not what your heart wants? To live near to God, right? Not just, you know, at camp when you're 16 years old, right? Not just when you go to some epic, you know, concert or something, but to actually live in the presence of God and to feel his nearness. I think it's all, it's what we crave. It's what we're built for. It's what we want. We're going to learn three lessons about living near to God this morning. First, uh, let's, well, let me just say it like this. First, here's the first one. It's going to cost you something. Now, as a gospel-centered preacher, you don't hear me say stuff like that, especially right out the gate. <laughs> I, do, I don't like to say that right out the gate, but it's got to be my first point because it's the first section of our text this morning. It's right there in our text. Look, at, look what it says, chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. So God tells Moses here, take, well, actually it's funny. Last week was like the first worship service. We talked about there was a call to worship and you can't have a worship service without an offering. And here is the offering right here. God tells Moses, take up an offering for me. Now, if you've been around Sacred City for long, you know that we honestly, we don't talk about money 
that much. We don't pass around plates and we don't ask for money very often. But listen, that doesn't mean money is a topic that's off limits. My bet is that you spend a whole lot of time thinking about money. If your money and the topic of money was off limits to God or off limits at church, you would basically be trying to keep a large portion of your life and a large portion of your thought life separate from God. It's, it's told that the crusaders in the middle age, the middle ages, the, the men, the knights would get baptized with their sword hand out of the water. They were saying, I want my whole body submitted to God, but my sword hand, I want to be able to do in battle whatever I want to do in battle. And I think many of us today would take our wallet out and we want to get baptized with our wallet out of the water and say, you know, whatever you ask me to do, I'll do it. Except for that, you better back up. You better stay. And as soon as a preacher, you know, you can impugn my motives all you want. You can say, oh, he just wants my money. He didn't... You know, you can do all that you want. This is God commanding Moses to take up an offering this morning. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, first, financial giving acknowledges my awareness that everything I have, everything I own, everything I make comes as a gift of grace from God. Yes, you work hard for it. But who gave you your body? Who gave you your disposition? Who gave you your mind? Who gave you your IQ? Who determined that you would be born in this country and not somewhere with a lot less opportunities for success? Scripture tells us that God determines all of that for us. And so everything we have and make belongs to him. Not only is that all the, the, the resources of the universe, the resources of our world belong to him. And so what we do is we harness his resources for our good, right? We use the created thing to make a living. Well, you're using something that's God's. You're borrowing something that's his and you're making money off it. Think about the Israelites here. They were slaves And they possessed little opportunity for upward mobility. They owned very little. 400 years they lived in slavery. But when God sets them free from Egypt, he made the Egyptians give them just a bunch of their valuables just to get them to leave early. The Egyptians were so fed up with God and so fed up with the people. They were literally, here's our valuables. Take our stuff and get out of our country. We're tired of you. We don't want you here. Get out of here. And so the Israelites leave Egypt wealthy in a sense, loaded down with the wealth of Egypt. They knew everything we have is a gift of grace. We didn't work for this. We didn't earn this. This is God in his graciousness loading us down with the riches of Egypt and sending us on our way. And now we have God in the desert saying, I want some of that back. I gave you those resources, not just for your comfort, not just to put shiny things on your mantelpiece, not just to adorn your camels or your donkeys. I gave you some of those things for this purpose. I had a plan in giving you that money for my own glory. I I gave it to you so you would give some of it back to me to build me a house, to build me a tabernacle. Now, I hope you see this is It's not a tax. It's a free will offering. But what this really is, is a heart check. That's what this really is. And honestly, that's what giving always is. It's a chance to see where your love and devotion really lies. Are you in love with your lifestyle? 
Oh, are you in love with the lifestyle that the next income bracket can bring you? Or are you overwhelmed by the gift of grace that God has already given you with your current status in life, your current situation in life? Are you thankful? Are you captured by his grace? See, this is a heart check. That's why God specifically says right there in 25, chapter, chapter 25, verse 2, he says, take this offering, not from every Israelite, says this, take this offering from every man whose heart moves him. Every man whose heart moves him. Every man who's compelled by the grace of God, who sees everything they have as a gift, who's seen the glory cloud and they're overwhelmed with it and they're not wringing their fingers and saying, mine, mine, mine. It's interesting in the Lord of the Rings that Gollum, he's kind of like a hobbit normal person and he finds this ring of power and it's his valuable It's his most valuable possession. He begins to call it my precious, his precious over and over. And what happens is he begins to hide away and pull away more and more from society and dwell in dark places. And his form literally changes and he becomes Gollum, this disgusting creature, because he's so absorbed with this one thing. And I'll just say it. That's what idolatry always does idolatry takes us from a human being and turns us into something far darker where we hoard our resources and we have our precious and we pet it and we look at it and we check our bank account statements and we go to our IRA and our 401k, my precious. And God says, not my people. Everyone whose heart moves them, who finds me precious, who finds my work precious. There's no guilt trip. There's no arm twisting. You just saw the glory of God. You just saw me and now I'm coming down to live amongst you and I'm asking something from you. Does that move you at all? People who see the glory of God are moved by the grace of God towards them and their generous givers. Bottom line, your valuables flow naturally to whatever it is you find most valuable. If it's your retirement, if it's your kids, if it's your vehicle, if it's your comfort, if it's your God, your valuables flow naturally to that which you find most valuable. And the apostle Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. He says this, whoever sows, that means gives sparingly, will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Listen, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now that blows our mind. And listen, if you idolize wealth, it's really hard to understand what a a cheerful giver, right? It's really hard because every time it feels like a sacrifice, every time it feels like hard work, every time it feels like a battle, right? But when you see God in his glory and you see the gospel and all its brilliance and the work of Christ, giving becomes a joy. And so the first thing we see about living near to God is that it's going to cost them something. It's going to cost us something too. But there's more. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. Well, I'll go to 8. And let them make me a sanctuary, that's a holy place, that I may dwell in their midst exactly, exactly, right? Highlight that. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern, okay, so that's the 3D model that I think he gets here, of the tabernacle, tabernacle means God's tent, and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. God says, I want you to do this. Now this, again, I just, I I constantly feel like I'm pushing a ball uphill, 
okay? A, a, a stone or something uphill, and it's about to roll back on me. Because every time I say something about God, we have this cultural disposition that kind of pushes back and says, well, why? Well, why is it going to cost us something, right? Or this one, build it exact, why? Why does it matter the size and the shape and the material and, the, and all of, why does it matter, I feel like we always have this pushback. What is the big deal? Why are there so many details? We, and especially if you're reading this in your Bible, you know, you're one year through the Bible plan, you get to 25, 26, 27, and every day you're like, what? How do I apply, you know, there's these angels on top of the ark? What is that saying to me? It's probably not saying anything. I'll just tell you that, honestly. Right? You're probably not going to get much out of that in your personal Bible time. Right? But what is going on in, the, in here is this. When God comes to town, he comes on his own terms. He comes how he wants to come. We make preparation for him. God gives Moses exact instructions on how to build his mobile home. And he wants it done exactly the way he says it's done. Not the way we think it should be done. And I think this is oftentimes the most Difficult things to get thing to get people in our culture to understand. God does not meet us on our terms. And I know you want him to, and I know you expect him to, and I doubt there's a person in here who has not said sometime in their life, life, God, if you just do this, then I'll believe in you. God, if you just do this, then I'll follow, follow you. God, if you just do this, then I'll devote my life to you. What are all of those things? What does all of that have in common? I want God to work on my terms, right? That's what it has in common. And I'll tell you what it also has in common. It's all built out of a deep sense of human pride. Like our confession said this morning, we expect God to operate off of our desires and our whims and our wishes. We think the creator of the universe who spoke a hundred billion galaxies into existence with one word should listen to one of these, one of us down here and, and God, listen, if you just showed up with a 50 foot angel in my bedroom, I would never doubt you again. I guarantee you tomorrow night, you would. The next night, you would doubt him again. And then, well, how about a 55-foot angel, God? Right? God, and when it comes to finances, we've all done this, right? Well, once I get that raise, once I make that, once I, once I do, then I'll give, then I'll be, it's never, it's never, it's never going to get here. It's never going to get here. As a holy God, listen, God was not going to be approached as they wanted but as he instructed. God did not ask them their preferences when it came to meeting with him. What kind of music would you like? What do you want my sanctuary to look and smell like? What, do you, what kind of people do you want to meet when you go there? Do you prefer a clean and cool modern look or something a little more rustic? How would you like to worship me? No, God says, this is how you build it. And from this, we also learn that God, meeting with God, drawing near to God, living with God, is not meant to be some kind of, kind of casual endeavor, right? If we want to meet with him, we must, or they must, follow his instructions. And that might feel awkward and foreign to us. Now listen, let me just make it a point. Let me make a point here. That Ark of the Covenant that you saw back there, that little gold box that eventually it's going to house the Ten Commandments. It's going to house some different things in there. And the Shekinah glory dwells there. This is, this is going to prove my point, okay? I think many of us, we look at things and we're like, why does God do that? That's very weird. Why doesn't he just, you know, come down and, and meet with us on our terms? One time, they're... They couldn't carry the Ark of the Covenant with their hands. They had to have poles that went through it, and they would carry it uh, with poles, and they would sit it on a, and whatever. They'd carry it with poles. They couldn't touch it themselves. It was too holy for them to touch. One time, they decided, you know what? This thing's too heavy. I'm going to put it on a cart. They put it on a cart. The oxen stumbled. The thing went to tip over, about hit the ground, and this guy named Uzzah reached out his hand and caught the Ark from touching the ground. You know what happened to him? Dead. God struck him down. Now, we look at this and we go, oh, God, he's giving. 
He was doing you a solid. He was catching. The thing was going to fall. And that's to assume, obviously, that somehow falling to the dirt is more is worse than touching the hands of a sinful human being. See, the ground never sinned against God. The ground never rebelled from its creator. The earth never rebelled. We rebelled. We are sinful. God doesn't come to us on our terms. We approach him on his terms or we don't approach him at all. And that's one of the great, oh, it's one of the great challenges in our culture as we push back on this idea of exclusivity we push back on this idea of how could God, how could Jesus be the only way to God with all the world religions? And you know what? I'm just going to give a little prequel just to let you know here. A little, uh, uh, what am I thinking? Commercial. When we're done with this series in late June, we're going to do a six-week series um, called Hard to Believe. And it's going to be six weeks on the, basically the six biggest pushback questions from our culture um, on Christianity and on how to believe. Has science disproved Christianity? Can there really only be one way to God? Um, how could bad things happen to good people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to answer one question each week. We're going to also follow through a curriculum in our missional community and do this. So for those of you who are wanting to invite people, it's coming six weeks and also to train us to be good apolog- apologists, to, to be good um, missionaries to our culture. That was just a side term. Wasn't planning on doing that. So a little little commercial this morning. Um, So to make a direct comparison here, we don't just meet God in a casual way. Our Sunday gathering is meant to lead us into the presence of God. And that doesn't happen casually. First, we need to be called into the presence of greatness. So we get called into worship. That's how our gathering begins. And We need to remember that God is calling us to worship him. And second, our hearts need to be humbled. And so we confess our sins and we are reminded of the grace of God. Then we can come rightly to the throne of grace and we can profess our faith and we can hear the reading of the word and we can respond rightly and we can take the sacraments and we can be sent out on mission to God. But the elaborate plans of the tabernacle and its furnishings, so it also shows us a small glimpse at the creativity and the beauty of God. This tabernacle is designed with the best of materials. It's full of gold and silver and bronze, beautiful tapestries and colors. And listen, we we don't get this when we read it. They, they, They didn't go to Joanne Fabrics and buy this stuff. Like these fabrics, as you're studying the scholars, when they're talking about this, the purple fabrics, they had to go to the sea and they had to get these special clams and these clams would open up and spit out this purple stuff. And that's what they used to dye all of the, it would take thousands of these clams to dye these tapestries, right? And some of them, some of them literally are produced by a worm, right? Like the, the material is produced by a worm and they have to get it from a worm to make these things. This took a lot of work. This was, there was a, I mean, really it was expensive. It was beautiful in a sense in this, for this scene, it was extravagant. Just because God is moving into a tent in the middle of the desert doesn't mean it needs to be drab. God is the original artist. And next week, we're going to see how God actually fills his people with his spirit and gives them gifts to create beautiful things. This is a text that most of us, I hope, I hope you're going to be here next week. Because if you think God only anoints and calls pastors, you need to be here next week. Because God calls and anoints artists and craftsmen to do good work and make beautiful things. And God, and this this shows us kind of the glory of work itself, that work is a good gift. And God calls medical professionals. God calls people to make computers and work on the internet and be engineers. And God anoints men and women for these tasks, not just calls them to come into the ministry. That's next week. So God is saying to Moses here, three things that I see. 
One, I'm com- so I'm coming to town, build me this tent. This is exactly how you're going to do it. First, he says, it's going to cost you something. Second, he says, build it according to my words. And third, he said, it's going to be more beautiful than practical. It's going to be more beautiful than practical. Think about that. None of us would do this. We are leading 2 million people through the desert. We would not be that worried about the wall coverings on God's tent, right? Hold on. Let's camp here for a while. We need more clams. I need more purple, baby. I need more purple. We wouldn't, doesn't this seem foreign to us? Like we're trying to get 2 million people from point A to point B. And here we are designing a tent that's going to take a lot of time to cut down trees, to fashion gold, to do all these different things. What's going on here? I mean, I think God is showing us that he has different plans and beauty and aesthetics matter to him, even in a dire situation like they are in. And this is where things I think get really interesting. The reason I'm grouping these these six chapters together is because they all have to do with what is often called the ceremonial law. When we're going through Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy, you're going to see basically theologians break it up into three types of law. We have the moral law. The moral law is constant. The moral law doesn't matter where you live. It's always wrong to kill. It's the 10 commandments. But then we have the ceremonial law, how to approach God, how to be near to God. That's what we're looking at right now. And we also have the civic law and the civic law was law specific to Israel as a nation. Those laws are not specific to us. We're in a different nation. We're in a different time, but the moral law remains constant. And so the tabernacle and all the furniture in it was only temporary. The ceremonial law was only temporary. God would later command them to uh, build a temple and then take, once they reach the promise, then they have to build a temple and then take all the things that are in the tabernacle and put them in the temple. And now people will meet with God in the temple. But even that temple was still only a sign pointing forward and a sign. See, like the, this, this is how the author of Hebrews says it. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says it like this. For since the law was but a shadow, there it is, a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of the realities. So here is my pulpit. This is the true form of my pulpit. Its shadow goes right here, right? The shadow, the law, the ceremonial law is the shadow. This is the reality, okay? That's what... The writer of Hebrews is saying, he says, since the law was the shadow, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the ceremonial law, the tabernacle, the temple, all the instruments, they were a shadow pointing forward to the reality. Now, listen, signs are great until you reach your destination. Once you arrive and you step foot onto the edge of the Grand Canyon, there's no need to go back and take a picture of the sign that got you there, right? You're there. Well, Jesus is the reality of what the sign of the law and the tabernacle and the temple and all of that stuff. Jesus is the reality that the law was pointing towards. In my example, Jesus is the Grand Canyon, And the ceremonial law was the sign that pointed towards him to prepare us to see him and to receive him and to understand him when he got here. Think about it. God would come down and meet with the people in this tent, this tabernacle. And in the gospel of John chapter one, verse 14, the author says this, and the word, the logos The word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word, the logos that spoke the universe into existence became flesh and dwelt among us. Hear this, the transcendent God over all things that spoke all things into existence, put on flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt means tabernacled. That Jesus in his flesh and blood body was the new tabernacle. The glory of God was present in him and he came near to us and dwelt among us. Jesus' flesh and blood is the new tent where God's presence dwelled among his people. But once again, we see God comes on his own terms. I meet people today. If God, if Jesus would have came in the 21st century, it'd be so much better. We'd have video of him, right? I can see it with my own eyes. Oh yeah, look, he just, tur- he just turned that water into wine. Listen, that's the most foolish, I, I don't mean to call you a straight up fool, but have you ever seen David Blaine or whatever the guy's name is? Whoever, David Copperfield, all these dudes? I watch them all the time and I think they do magic. He just pulled that card out of a brick wall. I doubt he did that. That's a trick. With all the technological advances we have today, that would not aid your your faith in one iota. It's a lie to believe that. If Jesus would have just came the way I wanted him to come, then I'll believe. It's the same thing they said when Jesus Christ came the first time. Jesus didn't move into the wealthy neighborhood. That would have afforded him all the easy access for upward mobility. Jesus was born into a poor family of a subjugated people. People said, oh, we've seen the Messiah. He comes from Nazareth. What'd they say? Nazareth? Does anything good come from Nazareth? If you want us to believe, you better send him from somebody else, somewhere else, not Nazareth. Jesus was born on the wrong side of the tracks. And the scriptures say this was done so that he would suffer like us. That he would know what it's like to be poor and needy, to be subjugated, to be marginalized. But this is where things get really out there. First, I just want to stop and just say, thank God for sending Jesus. And he comes down And he tabernacles among us. He puts on flesh. He knows what it's like to hit his hand with a a hammer, right? He knows what it's like to have annoying siblings. He knows what it's like to have demanding parents. He knows what it's like to be oppressed and marginalized. But God does more than just move into our neighborhood and, and be like us, to resonate with us and to suffer like we do. Jesus is the perfect man. He lives this life that we struggle to live. He lives it without ever sinning. He never fails to live up to God's standard. He's always kind. He's always gentle. He's always good. He's always honest. He's always loving. He's always patient. He's always faithful. But Jesus, this is, He pursued downward mobility. He took his obedience, not just down the wrong side of the tracks, but outside the gate of Jerusalem where criminals are crucified. This place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. See, Jesus, he spoke the truth and we hated him for it. He said, I am the son of God. He said, I have come to save my people from their sins. He said, I am the new tabernacle. I am the new temple where God dwells with his people. But the Jewish leaders, like many of us, reject him. They called him a blasphemer and crucified him as a cursed criminal on a cross. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus did this for us to forgive us our trespasses and to grant us by faith his own perfect 
righteousness so that when we believe in him, we get his report card. We get his right standing with God credited to us. So by faith, when God looks at us, he sees the face and the life of Jesus. This is good news. But listen, what Jesus did there is amazing, but it's not all that Jesus did. There's more. Jesus dies in our place for our sins and then is resurrected and he's ascended to the right hand of God, the father. But when he gets there, Jesus did stuff like this. He tells his disciples, I'm leaving. You can't go with me, but it's good for you that I go. They didn't believe him. Most of us would not believe him either. But what Jesus does, what he meant by that is he goes to heaven. He's with God, the father and God, the father and God, the son send the Holy spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. It's the comforter or he comforts us in our struggles. He walks with us. He's also the convictor of sin and the convincer of the righteousness of God. To what? To tabernacle, listen to this, in us. Because of Jesus, God can dwell in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to see the grandeur of that. Here in Exodus 25, we're looking at God saying, I'm coming down off the mountain to live with you in a tent. And there's all these rules and there's all these kind of hoops they have to jump through. And there's a lot of stuff that confuses us. And for hundreds of years, they did that. And then they had to go to the tent. And then for a thousand years, they were in the temple. And then the temple got destroyed. And Jesus shows up and Jesus says here, I am the temple. Then this body, this temple gets destroyed, but it gets resurrected to the right hand of God. And he says, I'm still not done tabernacle, tabernacle, tabernacling. Like I tabernacled in the tent. I tabernacled in the temple. I tabernacled in Jesus. I'm not done tabernacling. I want to, and I just made that word up. I think I want to come and tabernacle in you. You are my new tent. I want to be that near to you. Now that should, Uzzah touched the ark and died. And God's saying, I'm moving into the neighborhood. I'm co- how can that happen? Through the blood of Jesus Christ, that's how it happens. Through the righteousness of Christ. Our temple, once we believe in Christ by faith, our temple is deemed righteous and deemed holy so the spirit can move in and tabernacle in us. It's amazing news. But I don't want to shortchange you this morning. I don't want you to give you, and too many of us have been shortchanged by the Christian faith And we've taken one or two verses out of context. And we tell people this, all you have to do is pray a prayer and this will happen to you. And listen, there are people in this room who have prayed the prayer and the spirit of God is not tabernacling in you. In other words, you are not in Christ. Just like in the Old Testament here, it's going to cost them something. Their gold, their silver, their tapestries, it's going to cost them something for God to come and tabernacle with them. The same is true as us, uh, true of us. Jesus specific, he didn't mince words. He was very specific about this. You want me to tabernacle with you? It's going to cost you. What did he say? The rich young ruler, go sell everything you own. What did he say, other? Pick up your cross and follow me. What does that mean? It's going to feel like death. If you want to gain your life, you got to lose your life for my sake. The Christian, the call to be a Christian, the call for God to come tabernacle in you is the call to come and die to yourself, to your wishes, to your desires, and sometimes to your dreams. It's not a call to pray a prayer and then do whatever you want with your life. If you think that's it, you're not a Christian. You're not in Christ. And this is why it's so easy for you to do foolish things over and over and over and continue in sin over and over and over. 
because you're not in Christ. You're not a holy vessel. You haven't been made right with God. The Spirit's not in you. When the Spirit gets in you, it motivates you to give. It motivates you to lay your life down. It motivates you to make disciples. That's what the Spirit does in us. We've got this cultural idea of Christianity that it's a box we check on a voting record. Do you believe in Jesus? I guess so. I got no reason not to. That is not what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now that might sound difficult. That might sound like a raw deal. Well, it is. It's not a raw deal. It's difficult. But let me remind you of what Jesus has done for you. Everything in your life right now is a gift of grace. If it wasn't for Jesus, you would be destined for hell for eternity. See, sometimes, so I, I get in this entitled mindset where I get frustrated and I start thinking about things I want to do and things I wish I had time for and I start getting entitled and start falling away from having a gospel-centered mindset of remembering the work of Jesus. And one of the little things that I try to do, so every day I come to the office and Ben asks me the same question. How are you? How, how are you doing? How are you doing? And it, it, I'm sorry, Ben, but it kind of annoys me, right? <laughs> it kind of annoys me because, you know, what, what are you supposed to say to that? Like, actually, I'm having a crappy day. Thank you. You know, hopefully yours is crappy too now. You know, like, or, or just, yeah, it's fine. I haven't really thought about it. But something that I've, been try, that I've been trying to do, especially when I get in this mentality of thinking I deserve something, feeling entitled to something, is Ben asks me, how are you? And my response is, better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. And it's this little reminder that if you got what you deserved right now, you crybaby, you'd be going to hell, all right? And I need that sometimes. Maybe you don't need that. I need that. It gives me eyes of grace that everything above eternity and eternal suffering is a gift of grace and something to worship God for. So maybe I got two hours of sleep last night because screaming kids. But you know what? I got a lot to rejoice over. I got healthy kids, right? I got a healthy body. I've got a great family. We've got a great church. I've got the grace of God given to me in Christ. I've got a lot to rejoice over. How are you doing right now? Better than I deserve. But listen, I don't want you to hear. So, so I don't want you to hear. You have to give up everything to get Jesus. I want you to hear. That's step two. Jesus has given up everything to get you. And if you see that, and if you worship that, and if you love what he's done, and you find it glorious, then giving this up, it's a natural response. Okay? And then there's a second part. So we see what Christ has done. We do it too. But then there's this promise. Jesus says this, if you give up your life for my sake, then you will find your true life. Paul says it like this in Colossians 3.3. He says, for you have died. That means we've died to our wishes. We've died to the American dream. We've died to our cultural expectations. We're going to be cool in this culture and, and we're going to be just like everybody else. We've died to this. We've died to our flesh. For you have died. And listen, and your life, your true life is hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? We give up our life. I'm not going to try to build my own identity anymore. I'm not going to try to make something of myself anymore, prove myself to the world. I'm going to lay my life down and say, God, what do you want for my life? What do you have for me? And this is what God does. God moves in. God moves into us. Now listen, we saw with the tabernacle, when God moves into the neighborhood, he's not okay with just any tent. When he moves into the neighborhood, he moves in, he's got specific specifications of how this, he wants this thing to look. And many of us, if you are in Christ and you are a Christian and you find your, that God is messing with you right now, that he is in you, but he is challenging you and he's hurting you and, he, and you're going through suffering and you don't understand what's going on. This is what's happening. The spirit of God moves in 
And he begins remodeling. He's remaking his house for himself. This is a quote. It's a longer quote. I'm going to put it up here. It's from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He says this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed done. And so you're not surprised. Pause. You come to church, you have a problem with pornography. You come to church, you have a problem with gambling. You come to church and, you know, you, you, fear, you, have, you, you fear people and you can't be in community. And you know these are issues. You know these are problems. And you come in and you believe the gospel and God does work and God starts challenging you and God starts changing you. And you're thankful. Like, I used to worship money and now I don't anymore. I can give joyfully. This is great. Or I used to be addicted to pornography and now I'm not. I'm finding freedom. This is great. And now listen, we think, oh, good, I'm remodeled. God's moved in and this is good. He did what I wanted him to do. He changed the areas I wanted to do. I got married. Thank God. That's why I can't, you're right. We come in, we need a, we need a spouse. So we come in, we're worshiping like this all the time, right? We're worshiping like this, looking around for one. He gets us married. And then all of a sudden, whoa, this is getting a little difficult. What's going on? Well, this is what's going on. But presently, he, God, starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. How many of us are going through something where we're like, God, what are you doing? What on earth are you up to? Next slide. The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in himself. That, is that it? Did I have one more? Can't remember. Oh, there it is. He will make the feeblest and the filthy of us, filthiest of us into a God, little g, or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. God is making us into his house. And we don't get it. We don't understand. We're satisfied being a little, right? A little cabin. Just make me in a little comfortable cabin. That's all I need. He says, that will not do. I'm coming in and I'm expanding and I'm adding floors and I want you to be a person who reflects the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing for us. We're on the process. It's going to happen for sure. It's been guaranteed. So glorification's all about. It's going to happen when Christ comes back. It's going to happen when we die, but it's happening right now in a process, a difficult process called sanctification. And so Two, two things this morning. If you have not, if you've not pushed the chips onto the table and said, God, I'm all in. I give you everything. I give you my life. You determine what you want from me. I'm inviting you to do that this morning. This is what it means to follow Christ. It's not half. I don't keep a, a section of myself to myself and, and away from him. It's all or nothing. Take Christ this morning. For those who are suffering, those who are, God is knocking you about and you don't understand what's going on. I want you to hear he's doing a good work in you. Keep the faith. Look to Jesus. Trust his process. He's doing something greater than you thought he'd do. Let me pray. Father, I do thank you for your grace and your goodness and your mercy and your kindness to us. 
Because of Jesus, we get what we don't deserve. We get your love. We get you in us, the hope of glory. And I pray that you would move upon the hearts of your people today. That you would give them the faith to believe in the work that you've done for them. And the spirit would confirm it in their heart. The, the spirit would comfort them. The spirit, again, would bring conviction of sin, but also convincing of the righteousness of God. And that you would give us the faith to believe as we are being knocked about. That you are doing a good work in making us into a temple for yourself to dwell. And God, we know you do this work not because of our goodness, not because of our potential, not because of our talent, not because of our morality. You do this because of Jesus. He was the perfect man. And on the night that he was betrayed, sat down with his disciples, including the one who would betray him. And he broke the, the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And he said to the wine, this of the wine, this is my blood shed for you. Drink it in remembrance of me. And Father, we want to do that in faith today. We want to eat and we want to drink and we want to remember until you come again, until we feast with you again. And so I pray this morning that we would confess our sins and we would turn again to Christ and we would open our hands and you would put again your body and your blood into our hands, and we would bring you into ourself. And this is all a gift of grace. Confirm this in us as we reaffirm our covenant with you this morning. In Christ's powerful name we pray. Amen.